0: So on an occasion like this, it's the or pause of the day, which is literally to do with the drawing close to that which is auspicious, associated with the lunar cycle, a time when the, in ancient India they didn't have clocks and calendars, they'd operate by the moon, Okay, full moon, new moon, and that would be a special day because that was the time when the whole cycle was changing. From fullness to emptiness, from emptiness to fullness, from bright moon to dark moon, dark moon to bright moon, that cycle. And something about that, that rhythm, mm. represents our own birth, death, represents our own breathing, from breathing in completely, fully, brightly, breathing out fully. Completely releasing. Mm. And in the, within that is our life. Mm. And if we don't understand the fullness and the emptiness, we get stuck. We don't really let things go properly. You don't let things go completely. The system is stagnant. You don't rise up properly. So the full, you could say the full inhalation of your life is to really come in fully, properly, brightly, you know, with everything there, and then able to release it all, this is a cleansing, clarifying, purifying process, you understand nature, you understand the body, you understand the phases, you understand an awareness that is present through all of that, beyond birth and death, you could say. This is an occasion. All of us are born and die. All of us breathe in and out. And all of us have uh, some sense of faith, aspiration. Where's the meaning? Where's the purpose? Mm. What's really life about? What's my purpose in life, what's the resolution what's necessary to really take in what's necessary to let go of how do we keep that not just once but ongoing Mm. it's called cultivation Bhavana, and you're really in your life Mm. and it's essential not getting lost in the details and mm. I'm not imagining you being something more than that. Yeah. It's not a you know something that seeks fixity, stability. to be constant. actually this uh, is, leads to confusion, grasping, holding on, disappointment. Really tuning into the phases, the changes, the brightness, darkness the fullness, the emptiness the birth, the death and if that is fully comprehended, fully attended to there's what is it that attends to that is aware of that it uh, uh, is uh, sort of wordless, ineffable uh, but it says it's something that can inspire us you know, something beyond just this coming and going and uh, this is these, these occasions are about that. They all come from our different details of different lives, different personalities, different ages, different conditions, and yet gathering together around that purpose. The day especially significant um, is the going into homelessness, Anagarika, of the of Fergus. And this was, again, something that people would do on the, these lunar days. They would, they would be anagarikas for that day. They'd put aside their household duties, wear white, and practice the eight precepts, celibacy, not eating in the evening, um, putting aside worldly duties and focusing on Dhamma. And the Buddha said, this is the prime time to give teachings because people are really tuned in to that. Their, their faith is there. Their purpose is there. They're not distracted, and you can help them. Yeah, it's a prime time for teaching. And of course, today is also a further commemoration commemoration of uh, Lumpo Cha, Tanajan Cha, Lumpo Cha, different terms of reverence for uh, um, you know, the founder of Chitaviveka, this place. Um, this was the first place. It was founded in his training practice, his training style, and his image, and his the first one in the West. The only one he actually visited because there were no other ones. So this is quite quite um, amazing, really. Mm-hmm. It's co- coming together. Of course, Chittabee Vapha itself is pretty amazing. The way it all kind of came together out of just seemingly miracles and good luck and circumstances to create something that seems so so established and so welcoming and uh, stands for the Dhamma and what it's about, part of it is about establishing a culture and that's cultivation cultivation and culture same sort of root words because with you, you your culture you you immerse yourself in it. You, know, you move into it, you know, and you activate in it. You engage with it, and you engage with it. And, it, and you engage with it, so it. It tends to steer how you engage, what's correct, or what's appropriate, what's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Dhamma culture, the aim of it is to immerse us in a, in a an environment that draws out the best and uh, starves the worst and gets us to examine things clearly this is cultivation Mm. although we tend to often use the word meditation which is really one you know it's it's a feature of it which is really about stabilizing the mind Um, as we all recognise that that kind of process can only occur particular times of day or maybe for brief periods of retreat. Yeah. And even if it's a long retreat, it's still it's not <laughs> it's still contained by your own attention. So often with meditation retreats you're almost deliberately, you know, closing down the environment external world and it's trying to focus internally and that's salutary and useful but of course for many people the uh, riddle conundrum writes how can I keep this going when I start open my eyes and start moving around and talking with people and doing things you know it seems to all all that nice refined clarity and composure seems to have kind of gone (laughs) you know and that's, that's the uh, drawback of it. it? Yeah. And so certainly uh, with the uh, Boccia and the whole kind of forest tradition, the sense of, yeah, that's yeah, that's part of what we do, but it's actually much bigger than that. It's much wider because it's, it's really uh, opening, if you like, open the practice to involve sense contact and behavior and engagement and responsibility and relationship and suffusing it all with uh, Dhamma Uh, and using it to learn from and using it to keep noticing how one's affected where one gets reactive beginning to look at some of our habits that we might have in terms of our relationships with people or positions or authority or lack of it or health or whatever and we get upset or saddened or attached or fearful around our life and rather than carving out a kind of a little cave in the middle of it where we can hide away actually the courage and a considerable endeavor it takes to come out of that into something whereby the eyes are open things are happening, we're doing these things, and yet we're truly really looking at how we can cultivate um, salutary qualities, which there are lists of, you know, and one of these of course is the ten parami, uh, which I think are very helpful to, to uh, bear in mind, generosity, givingness, general giving heart, which is material, it's also hospitality. Giving attention, you know, giving advice, uh, uh, sila, morality, ethical sensitivity, awareness of one's conduct, speech, body language, mannerisms, ways of dress that you know produce what effects they produce in oneself or others. Uh, renunciation, looking towards Turning away from the uh, gratification triggering that sense contact, a very important one, which is really the pivot of the Anagarika is really making big thing on how sense contact, you know, itself is just the fact of life. And the problem is not what not sense contact itself; it's what sense contact arouses, which we can have some say over you know, we're not blind, deaf, dumb numb <laughs> but we don't have to be aroused by greed, passion, fear hatred and all these kinds of pollutions and so really we're looking at actually begin to examine how those occur and both restraining by not giving attention to where when we get overwhelmed or confused or drawn out, but even where we Recognize those tendencies, then examining what's happening here. Where does this go? And so, this is where you really develop a lot of uh, wisdom, which is another parami, really discerning. Where does that go? Stressful, or unstressful, leading to emptying out, leading to filling up, leading to clamoring for more, leading to demanding less, leading to all this passion and involvement or cooling it. Where does this go? This is discernment. Kanti, patience, just the ability to put away the time boundaries. A very, very significant uh, feature of monastic training and Dhamma cultivation to be with things we don't particularly enjoy. Not to necessarily enjoy them, but to recognize you know, well, things are not pleasant, getting averse to it doubles the problem. (laughs) It's like you're already shot by one arrow, then you shoot yourself with another (laughs) arrow. You both feel the discomfort and then add aversion to it. the, The two are not necessarily linked. Uh, but that means you've got to have patience because when one gets the discomfortable either physically, verbally and of course psychologically huge challenge really yeah. uh, we get that this isn't right I don't see the point of that yeah. what's she doing? he looks weird, this isn't right I don't stand for that <laughs> you boil it down what does it mean? don't like it yeah. <laughs> unpleasant and then there's that, and well, you want to follow that. Is it skillful? You know, and maybe things are pieces, of, just just like the aversion. And it takes more patience with oneself, with one's own emotional reflexes and habits. We don't first we don't really feel we have any control over, it, it just flares up. And why this is really long term. So though, you know, in the old days, Anagarika would be for one night, we recommend, look, let's do this for a year. You know, and then you're going to get a feeling for the power of that. Because along with that patience, you've got to have honesty, to be honest to yourself, what's going on. And you have to have resolution. These are also two very powerful parami. And you have to have energy. And you get more energy by determining instead of using the energy on proliferating, resisting, comparing, fighting just energy on holding steady <laughs> bearing, holding steady and investigating the agitations in the mind and then we get the power of meditative training which is you can begin to sense your body your, and your awareness And you feel these energies moving, these fears, these aversions, these struggles. Put that, all that passionate stuff within this bigger vehicle, this bigger vessel of just steady, spacious presence. And don't think about it. Just sense it. And let the power of that steady, patient presence kind of absorb and dissipate the flares of passion and struggle and opinionatedness. And this is where these, you know, cultivation... This is, to me, is the real meditative bit in the cultivation. Oh, well, of course, that's its contribution, a very powerful contribution. Yeah, so we look at these parami, you know, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, and resolution... Without resolution the rest are just thoughts. (laughs) So resolution is the thing that really makes it steady work. And then the others are uh, kindness, or not picking up the thread of aversion. not picking up the thread of cynicism, not picking up the hint of complaining and fighting oneself, recognizing those tendencies and just instead turn the energy towards something more warm and nourishing. And finally we have equanimity, which is a sense of not picking up the, the excitement That whisper, that shimmer, that glow, that tickle, that flare excites, excites us either success, failure, oh no, we get agitated. And through these um, holding this and holding these uh, qualities which, um, you know, when you you get the idea and you go, wow it takes some doings <laughs> it certainly does it certainly does but that's why we have this immersion in a culture to support that yeah mm-hmm. well, you're getting the signals you're getting the reminders you're getting the conversations you're getting the teaching you know, you're getting the the, the routines the lifestyle constantly tend to break the rush of one's passions mm. and the slumping of indolence mm. something steadying steadying, steadying so when we talk about I talk about this culture then um, having Travelled around and been to Dhamma centres and monasteries of various kinds over the years. As for myself, very uh, feeling very fortunate you know, to uh, be within this particular uh, collection of Dhamma centres. They have differences, changes, but there's uh, something congruent, coherent about all of them. I mean, they, all, they all advocate lifestyle culture uh, and the culture is bounded with the precepts uh, and earthing groundedness stability responsibility and community and renunciation of course and rather these is just kind of this these languages but actually you're starting to live in something you're getting it not just an idea in your head it's coming in through your sense organs the way you move, the way you see other people move, the voices you hear, the conversations you hear, the pauses, and particularly when you have very experienced, seasoned people who are deeply embedded, deeply, deeply embedded, have gone way beyond, then you're picking up their example, noticing. And uh, we're extremely fortunate to have uh, um, been we still receive some of the echoes and the memories and the perceptions and the training of Mpochā, um, a founder in a way. Mpochā, a forest monk. So if you've uh, been around the Buddhist world, you see many kinds of Buddhist contemplatives and, and monastics. Some of doing more the uh, ceremonial duties or uh, civic affairs study you know the forest monks who are the forest well nuns, who head out for remote places forests and to get really back to the earth feeling that the uh, complexities of civil society and the culture of civil society is a major uh, distraction and uh, one is greatly strengthened by living in a situation where you're not getting those influences so we though we might call you know say Lumpur Chah from Thailand well if you went to Bangkok (laughs) you wouldn't be like this you know you go to Isan, which is northeast Thailand of course this was now it about the 1940s and 1950s, the north uh, Northeast time was pretty uh, remote and uh, um, what's the polite way for it, but um, earthy, unsophisticated in terms of civic society. A bit rough. Uh, but people were extremely resilient because they had to live and deal with earthy realities of birth and death and hunger and food and so forth and club together village society working together and that I would say it's the breeding ground of most of the great meditation teachers in Thailand came from this particular region it's the breeding ground of of cultivation because it encourages deep resilience, a lot of energy, effort and wisdom that's not theoretical, wisdom that's the savvy that You need in order to get around in a forest. You've got to keep your eyes open, you've got to be on your toes, you can't, the toes off, you can't wander off into your head. And it's also a place of extreme insecurity, you know, which um, most people dread, uh, naturally, but is the prime place for, for deep, for fully waking up. You know, you could be dead tomorrow. There are snakes, there are Wild places, you could, uh, so there are spirits and evil creatures who could destroy you. And that was the ethos of that culture. So you really got to be aware, be wakeful, and look after each other. That's the kind of grounding. And I think that a lot of that feeling and that flavor was present in the presence of Lopo Cha and uh, the places he established. It's still very earthy, you know, practical hands-on. Not a lot of theory, Um, not saying theory's wrong, not saying study's wrong by any means, but forest monks tend to be more emphatic around, you know, uh, using your body, really, and refining it. So it's not just... Kind of, it can be extremely refined body language, body deportment, um, earthy things like really keeping your cootie clean, your little hut, however simple and rustic it was, it's always swept very clean and clear, um, both because that way you don't get kinds of invasive insects taking over, and also it means you're aware of whether a snake's getting in. And it's a sense of um, responsibility, this is your place, then you attend to it, you relate to it. It's not just the place you kind of casually use. You're you're deeply aware. This is a a shelter, then respond to that. Look after it. And these are the people you live with. This could be somebody else's kuti the next few months. This is a sangha property. Then please respond in that way. So you come out, don't you? You can't just sort of sink in (laughs) <laughs> courage to come out but not in a way that's seeking uh, gratification or fanciness but actually is responsible and considering you know, this very property that's been created for me I want to be able to pass that on to somebody else and that's a simple you see that's a kind of simple line in the training and from that we step out of our of our solipsism where we imagine we're kind of lost in our heads on our own and creating ideas and schemes of what we would like to be what we you know, just come out <laughs> come out of that rabbit hole you know uh, because it's not developing any parami as no it's just, <laughs> it's just drifting and proliferating it's not it's not helping you to, to discharge the agitations and confusions of the mind. In fact, it's adding to them. So, here's a thing like a lodging. There's a place to what do you really need? How do you respond to it? How do you keep it so that somebody else can move in and it's in good working order? It's very much part of cultivation, it requires mindfulness requires reflection, requires selflessness, and requires the understanding of impermanence. I could be gone tomorrow, and how about somebody else? This thing that's created is liable to decay, how do I respond to that? Mm -hmm. All these are aspects that Lumpur Chā would often teach and encourage uh, in, in, in firm and resolute ways. How to look after the bowl, you know, how to do the chores properly. You know, that would be a major feature of teaching. And what's this about Nibbana? <laughs> Spirituality? What are you thinking about? Where you carry your, your bowl or something? What's that going to do with anything? Because you're actually working on the here and now. <laughs> factors of where you're getting careless, where you're taking things for granted, where your attention is drifting off, and you keep holding it within this culture. So it so it starves it, you know, by, by not putting energy into proliferations, you're just stabilizing it in in a very simple earthing way. Yeah. Mm. I think many of us long for such a thing. You know, we live in a uh, culture that's increasingly become almost abstract. I mean, many people who <laughs> are now listening to this will be looking at screens. And that has its advantages, uh, certainly. Uh, but we also reflect on how much time you spend looking at a screen? And what are the realities of screens? Two-dimensional images, flashing. You, know? you come across a website, amazing website. Looks fantastic. Well, who's behind it? You don't know. You come across a message on a screen, you know, carefully. Who who said that? You don't know. Is it true? You don't know. You come across something advertised, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't experiment with it. Are you sure it's genuine? And all this kind of virtual realities that you can't actually really test for yourself. And they're disembodied. As we we look at the screen we lose contact with our own here and now presence, embodied presence and we're into the world which has always been presented of, um, you know, that which is Advertising, glamorous, interesting, fascinating, new, powerful, exciting, so forth. Not about equanimity, that's for sure. <laughs> you don't see anything advertising equanimity. <laughs> Here is something that's not that really interesting. Won't get you excited. This, you think, well, switch that off. <laughs> And so this is not just a diatribe against screens because I use them myself. But, um, you know, that sense of mindful awareness of where is my culture? What am I immersed in? And how much of that is just fantasy of various kinds, just nebulous virtual realities. Uh, And what does that do to you? And we notice certainly in that, in that kind of culture the, the uh, sort of abusiveness of the messaging and the violence of the messaging that can come across or call the dark web or even just on these chats. People get very unpleasant to each other. They wouldn't do that if you're standing in the same room, I hope. But it, it, it cuts off responsibility. You don't know who said it. You don't know where it's going. It doesn't matter just spew your poison out totally responsibility and say so, no, you know, if you live in a, a real culture and a community with full awareness, you try to bear in mind everything you do and say affects somebody internally you don't really know that a lot of times we just think, no, I'm going to do this you know, I'm going to do this you don't really, really you get very internal, but contemplating the external. How does this look, sound, seem? What's the effect of that? The way I use my body, yeah. Yeah. the way I, the language I use, even the, the volume and the speed. Is this something that leads towards other people feeling steady, calm? Clarified or just agitated, confused, yeah. And so we really train like that because then you're beginning to use this world of contemplate this world of sense contact and recognizing in that where the ignorance and defilements creep in, and if they're extracted, that that very same world of sense contact can have a, a very inspiring and gladdening quality to it and certainly Lumpur Cha, someone who was very manifest you know he wasn't just kind of like silence he was very manifest um talking acting moving around engaging with people a lot of it you know be very stern um, but you certainly this was major presence um and, you know, you could... I don't, I don't know if you could really be with lumpur Child for, for more than a few minutes without recognizing this is something different here. <laughs> uh, you know, this is where you get that, that, oh this is not just the ordinary person. You uh, this is something agile, powerful going to places uh, deep, penetrative you know, your faith rises because you're in you and that's so powerful and precious because you know, we can have faith, we can read a teaching and have faith in a teaching that's great but seeing it lived out and by a rather kind of ordinary looking person it wasn't sort of glamorous you know, tanned (laughs) Beautifully shaped, it's kind of lumpy, dumpy sort of shape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was part of the beauty of it, you know. Uh, it look, you know, when you see his movies of was it Keanu Reeves as the Buddha, sort of godlike physique, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly little boy child didn't look like that. But so that was part of it. I think, well it's like a potato, you know, but <laughs> real earth quality to it, and yet out of that something really very potent and powerful going on. Yeah. And so you think, oh, this is different. Yeah. Uh, the present the manifestation was powerful and many faceted. So people often remark about how uh, his manifestations would change quite, quite uh, significantly. When he'd be a Pong, he tended to be much more on the kind of severe, straight, firm, you know. But he was traveling in the West, he'd be much more engaging, witty, jokey, humorous, and... Uh, but you think, what's happening? my sense is the person actually is sensing the ground of what was the ground of that culture in the Isan which actually responded to those signs in a very um, supportive way which wouldn't have worked so well in the West Westerners would, would actually need to be warmed and drawn out and engaged because uh, the culture is so withdrawn from that. But anyway, that's so the way it was. And uh, his, so there's something about that, that ability to, to manifest and change in accordance with circumstance and yet not changing principle. So uh, sometimes I say, cha, don't change, just adapt. Stay. Keep the principle. Keep the basic themes, the prayer of me, the Dhamma, and then you change the manifestation in accordance with what fits and creates the right effect in that culture. And he was he was kind of very uh, uh, confident in that. Uh, certainly, he spent uh, early part of his training pretty much. Alone, uh, visiting various uh, teachers. Lumpur Kinli was one of his teachers. He stayed with quite a bit. Lumpur Kinli very very quiet monk, very quiet, very simple monk. Didn't say much at all, you know. Uh, and uh, but also Lumpur Kinli I mean, you know, talk about modest. Uh, you know when I went to visit his um, they have a little kind of mute, mute, like a what do you call it, a reliquary where they keep his his requisites, what, what he left behind. <laughs> you know, the sum total of his physical requisites is kind of rag, <laughs> a bowl, a rag he wore, leather sitting cloth. Uh, uh, I think there was something like um. Of oh, the, the, the sandals, his pair of flip flops, which just like a, somebody took a slice of bubble gum, it was that thin, with a bit of string, and he walked to India and back with those. <laughs> so, you know, renunciation and very silent, and the you know, poor child stayed with him. And, you know, and so it kind of had very little manifestation at all. A deep, deep embodied presence. So certainly poor chalk lived with that, picked that up. And then, you know, as he began to make his his own forge out on his own, feeling he'd be near his home village. And his mother living nearby, she came to the monastery, became a nun. And so this is something very kind of again very Cultured and communal about that he was living in a real place with real people and being a real person but transformed by those deep practices and that to me is very inspiring yeah. Yeah. because often for the meditator yeah you're meditating fine Go home, and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. But for the cultivator, they begin to contemplate and use the world around them and their relationships and purify them. So they're very thorough. And it means also there's a great outreach. Uh, a lot of the forest teachers will be like Numpur Kinley, very quiet don't say much and when to stay with them they'd be a simple kuti not much teaching hardly any um, just a few do's and don'ts and then keep going very often not even group meetings mostly on your own arms round Patimokho back on your own but normal cha kind of the very um Significant things he did was deliberately establish a group, practice, and community forms, where people have to learn to relate to each other, with respect, kindness, and cooperate. You know, so using that relational realm as a place also to purify from who's top dog here and who's getting what, and you know, you work through all that. You know. Everybody help out. You know, position is relative. You know, so you, ten bosses. One day you're the senior monk. Next day three monks or fifteen bosses come in. You're the junior monk, <laughs> <laughs> and you just change the duties as accordance with where you are in that system. And you don't hang on to some position or another. Mm-hmm. You know. So all these, any of these duties you carry out, junior, senior. An agarica, abbot, senior nun it's not what the duty is it's how you carry it out with purity and how you carry it out without clinging and making identity out of it that's what counts mm. yeah. accessibility I mean, one of these things are well, the more humorous uh, accounts and quite a few a little poor child he was... Uh, this young uh, student, um, Oxford University graduate, and he'd done some uh, retreats, meditation retreats, I think with Mr. Goenka, I think it was Mr. Goenka. The practice is one, you you spend a lot of time moving your attention through your body, body scanning, moving it through the body, moving it down your arms, your fingers, so you get take an hour or so to move through your body so he's kind of like you could do it he's pretty good you know he got this thing he could do his he So do his meditating uh, comes to see Lumpur Chow He sits to Lumpur Chow this is, this is how I meditate Lumpur Chow looked him, and he was sitting like this and he leaned forward put his hands on the ground until he was crouched like a and he started sniffing his body like a dog <laughs> like, <laughs> say so me like a dog <laughs> in his arms and <laughs> so that's what you're doing so they come up with a humorous it was a kind of a put down or a, you know, a, a balloon pricker it was done with a kind of sense of actually physically embodying this and presenting it because the person couldn't speak Thai anyway and so that, kind of like he was prepared to which is a pretty unusual thing for a monk to do <laughs> particularly someone of his Seniority and you know, just presenting it, you know, with that sense of you know, this is fun, isn't it? It's a joke. Don't take yourself seriously. Don't get so stuck up. Just relax, you know. Let's uh, be real. And he very much encouraged that. I mean particularly with uh, maybe more with Westerners, I can't really speak with great authority on these matters, but. The people who get a lot. I think that one of the characteristics was the, what he noticed about Westerns the incredibly, seemingly complicated thought patterns and processes, psychologies and attitudes, and complicated ones. And uh, where maybe the, at that time the people, what Balpal were mostly Isan uh, villagers, and sort of fairly, you know, simple psychologies we much more sensual in the earth, dealing with, you know, pain and craving, you know, getting kind of raw stuff, Western is just up in their heads, these complicated doubt systems and, you know, should I be this and what does this represent, the meaning of that, what's the ultimate truth, and, you know, should I do how much we pass, should I do, I should do samatha, or maybe I need to do more metta, which is the really how many jhanas, which is this jhana, that jhana, this kind of stuff. Going on. <laughs> and tying themselves in knots. There's a lot of self criticism. Yeah. really encourage you No. Know. Yeah. So there's one, one occasion when I think they have the part of the culture was um, you take it in turns. So there's a lot of attendance, a lot of foot massaging, and being in soreness and people giving each other, you know, tweaking and Putting pressure points and helping each physically, a lot of physical physicality to it, uh, and kind of there's you know it's it's not erotic, but it's very much you know very much we're here, <laughs> and uh, in, a, in a healing way. And one of the one of the practices was to actually bathe, pour water over the over the teacher, so you kind of they put a little bathing cloth and they pour water and they soak them down. There. This is something that was quite uh, common, uh, and you know people feel well, about that. <laughs> but it would, it would just kind of be part of the Thai monks would do it quite readily. So eventually, people would join in: foot massage, foot washing, and then body washing, and, and a sense of actual you know contact, physical contact. And uh, one of the American monks, he was bathing Lumpur Chah Lumpur char said uh, did you did you ever do this to your father and he said well no we don't bathe our fathers in New York Lumpur <laughs> <laughs> he said that's why you have so many problems <laughs> <laughs> and he said, okay chew that over <laughs> You know, a sense of real, you know, earthy family relationship rather than oh, dad, some old geezer that I'm getting away from, you know, actually the physical and the care and the, you know, that, that directness, earthy directness. And certainly if you in the time I spent with the poor child, which wasn't very much, I mean, it wasn't a city physical, but it was a psychological massage. You know, because he'd be looking around and scanning the room, and he could sense he was kind of. It very good. you had good radar, and he'd do a number on somebody. <laughs> not, not, you know, not unpleasant, but sort of like teasing or, what's happening for you, you know, or bring him forward or. People were nervous. He'd kind of have a little joke with them and bring them forward. He was very friend I was very nervous, and so he was very warm and drawing me forward to engage with him. You know, which I was very, quite, quite frightened and anxious. And he was very, you know, pulling forward. In that, and other people have, who have seemed a bit more kind of, well, I got it all together. This is right. He'd sort of deliberately find ways to tease them, undercut them. You know, so this kind of play engaged play mm-hmm. with manifestations to to work on our fear and our our self boundaries you know we get so involved with just being me and it's not even pleasant a lot of it's bounded by Self consciousness and fear, and sense of self image. You know, I'm not really this, I'm not good enough, and maybe I should be something else. And it's just kind of like stuck in this membrane. <laughs> and just that breaking of the membrane into you're just another being, come on, you know, wash the on do the pull the water out of the well, you know, come out of it. Uh, yeah. And then you know, you kind of feel it's all about action and flow, and then stop. And this is another <laughs> very significant feature that one witnesses in many of these uh, accomplished teachers. What do you call it? It's like an absence. Except it's not absent. It's present but non manifesting. And again, if you spent time with Ngopo Cha, you probably would notice that. Times it just. It's almost like the person disappeared. It's quiet. And then able to come out again and this again is, is very extremely significant mm-hmm. spending time with Lumpur Liam who was uh, very closely associated with Lumpur Cha for many years and eventually became the abbot and uh, when Lumpur Cha was alive and functioning, Lumpur would be the sala, Lumpur Cha would sit in the top at one end of it, and on one side, he'd be there and he'd be doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying, and either side of him were these two, these two absences, there's was Lumpur Liam, just, and Lumpur Chu, and like, they didn't say, they didn't move, <laughs> There was just this, they were like the bookends. Around Lumpur Chao, just be, just holding presence, just, nothing, you know. And Lumpur, Lumpur Liam barely spoke. Lumpur Chu was hardly, even less, you know. What's this about? You know, they're just, uh, you know, they're certainly not dozing off or spacing out. Just manifestations happening. We don't need to add anything to that. Just be here. So, in a way, that the absence helps the frame and highlight the presence. You've got nothing particular to, have to do or say. Don't do or say, just be there. And you had to switch off or turn down. Whereas an average person would probably go, Okay, well, what's he going to talk about today? Yeah, well, I've heard that. Yeah, well, so, 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 What are they doing down there? Oh, well, it reminds me, I've got to think, I'm going to be doing some projects this afternoon. What, what time is? I wonder how long this is going to go on for. Well, I've got time to do that. So. Yeah, what's she up to? You know, doing all this stuff. it reminds me, oh, yeah, I think, you know, all this stuff will be going on. You know, so when we're actually. That's, that's the average person's presence is a series of absences. It's a sense of what could, should, might, wouldn't, or if are all just virtual realities kind of spewing out. <laughs> and we take that for life and it's uh, just this proliferation of restless energy. Yeah. And uh, then yeah, training when you've got something like that, so you don't need to be anybody now and turn it off and then that also very important because if everybody's out there clamoring and making noise and this, that and the other then you get, it's too much yeah. it's too much distract, too much energy moving around you know how to be silent when it's necessary, when it's not needed and how to say something when it is needed And if you contemplate in your own mind and process you see right in the center of that when we're receiving impressions we're receiving words we're receiving visions we're to receiving touches something contact what happens? perception? well that means that and then well, what I you know touched by sight oh, that reminds me of what's he doing that for? you know you get the perception, and then this other thing, which is the activation, the mind starts chattering about it. That's called sankhara. So you get the perception, that's that, and then, ding, and then, well, I don't agree with that, or I do agree with it, or yada yada. But that movement is so quick, and so immediate, we don't even see the, the links, it's, it's completely conjoined to see something is to start talking about it in your head and then all that going on and this is called rebirth or birth now if there's seeing, hearing, contact, impression and that impression resonates and is allowed to resonate and not picked up not acted upon not criticised, but just allowed to get something non-birth, non-becoming. Yeah. These, these are <laughs> these are actual moments that we can touch into if we are prepared to be held steadily, where. Fundamentally, we're not just following the track of our reactions, of our agendas, of our histories, of our all that inherited stuff. We're not following those tracks of what I plan to do, what I expect, and what could happen, and what I think about this, and the way other people should be. We're not following those tracks. We're not following the tracks of, well, I'm not much of this, I ought to be something else. We're not following those tracks. We're just... Recognizing those tracks, okay, awareness, don't engage, don't tangle, don't wrestle with it. Energy is not feeding that, those tracks fade. And that requires resolution and patience and a commitment. To be in a context that keeps you there at that place. And this is what I imagine many of, it, certainly myself, I've found, you know, uh, I need restraint. I need something that challenges or my you know, want to do this, want to do that, don't want to be this, don't want to be that. And you know, it just challenges that. This is not, and not in an unfriendly way, but this is why we're patient and resolved and kindly. Just let it go, it's okay. And then you see other people doing it. And you see experienced people have 30, 40 sitting there like there's just nobody there. They're not kind of, well I'm 30, 40 reigns. you know, I should be there just. And, oh, light and open. Yeah, I uh, certainly, now we have, I certainly have the privilege of um, being with Lord Paul Liam you know, a few months ago and again it's a, such a, a kind of lovely example of someone who should be <laughs> burdened is supposed to be the you know the Abbot of Pong, which now got 300 branches in it, so there's 300 sources of stuff to deal with and problems and issues and projects and developments and queries. He should be totally saturated and flooded and have iPhones clicking around him to organize himself. doesn't. Yeah. This kind of insignificant little figure, Don't say very much. Yeah. Sit down in the room, it's just empty room, sit there, nothing to do, doesn't do anything. Yeah. And you know, he's noticed. going to ask him a question. See, it's the same thing with Lumpur Chang, you'd ask a question, and the question would go and it wasn't, there was no reaction to it, it's just like it sort of disappeared. (laughs) And then something would come out that wasn't necessarily about responding to the question, it was about responding to the person who asked the question, so, oh, and I noticed that with uh, Paul Liam, he'd sit there and say, Know, Paul, would you like to do this or that? You think, well, okay, you well. <laughs> Nothing happens, and then he looks around. Yeah, I'll walk out. <laughs> okay, that's what he wanted to do. He didn't need to verbalise it, but you know, it wasn't like, oh right, it was a sense, he just pause and what's needed. Yeah. That gap between perception, input, and reaction, in there. And for some of us that's like a, you know, a, 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 a second or a moment we can get to, Sometimes, or for longer periods, you realise for these people, this isn't. This is the abiding place. This is where they live. <laughs> That's their home territory, in that open space of just. Mm-hmm. And the manifestation can come from that, and dissolve. The manifestation occurs in accordance with what's necessary. It's not personally demanded. It's not just the. Overflowings of some personal wish, it's just that which is required, suitable in terms of Dhamma, and then, okay, and then end. And so, you know, someone like Napoleon, mm. be there all day, and his kuti, it wapapong, people coming in and out, just sitting there, yep, just constantly you yeah, know, well if we think like that we're going to create problems for ourselves you know, somebody comes with incredibly complicated this, that, and the other well, things will change you know uh, and uh, just directing straight to the emotional reactivity and card it out don't need that that, using that that ability to you know act as a centre a human centre for how many thousands of people how many thousands of people Whereas the average person would be really, really busy, secretaries, computers, you know, all this kind of stuff to try to manage it and frying, frying with, you know, trying to get it all managed, and someone's just doing exactly the opposite, letting the emptiness and deal with that, and then you know what to do. You know. <laughs> because that empty place is the place that most of us are skipping over in our hurry to get things figured out in our expectations of the future, we're skipping over it and so therefore we're making huge complexities and we're not we're losing the power of steadiness and it just goes on and on and on so the wise one is one who encourages you to go back to your polarity of steadiness the ability to let go empty really discern emotional triggering and remove that and then you'll know what to do that was how Abhocya generated these monasteries he didn't have all kind of skill secretariat just You you do this, go there, do this, you'll know what to do and keep in touch (laughs) We've got to work it together Individual responsibility, community awareness Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, one of the kind of favorite uh, references that Paul Liam makes when, you, when he, you, you're asking him something, he says, oh, Future. That means <laughs> <laughs> uncertain. <laughs> you only hear that one word, future, and you realize this means it's not of the present. It's uncertain. Don't hang on to it. Mm. Yeah. So, no future. No, says, Practice for no result. No result. No future. No success. No failure give all that up don't get caught in those waves stay in the equanimity yeah. Yeah. and yet with that no future no success no, no creation you've got <laughs> thousands of people monasteries being built created stuff being created from that place of just uh, empty your own agendas respond to what's around you don't concern yourself about the future act responsibly now in purity everything will take care of itself from there we do this externally and internally practice that in your own heart and mind Don't try to create an idea of what you should be, could be, will be, won't be because you're only this and that and the other and you might be this, you're never that and are you this. Don't do that. (laughs) Just come to that place where you understand these triggerings of anxiety and need and worry and fear and you pull out the trigger. And then you'll know what to do. You won't need to have a definition of what you are. Mm. This is the emptiness and the manifestations that we inherit as our ongoing culture and tradition. And uh, uh, it's time for us to express our, our gratitude in more than words, but in practicing in accordance with that.